you for returning to the AUA University podcast series. Today's take-home message is in urology from the AUA annual meeting in Boston in May of 2017 include pediatrics, penile and urethral cancer, and kidney cancer. We will begin with pediatrics presented by Dr. Ree. Thank you, Dr. Thrasher, Dr. Manga, members and guests. There were over 100 abstracts presented for the Society of Pediatric Urology, and the abstracts addressed a number of varying topics, and today I will try to highlight a few of these. As to be expected in pediatric urology, genital development is of particular interest. The winner of the $30,000 research grant was to the group led by Dr. Abhishek Seth, who with his work on KCDT13, his lab demonstrated that defects in the KCD13 gene can demonstrate can result in hypospadias, cryptorchidism, and other lower urinary tract aberrant development. They demonstrated with loss of expression, mice were more likely to have cryptorchidism, smaller testes, and smaller baculum with decreased sperm count and motility. We know that in disorders of sexual development, a number of factors can cause genital ambiguity. Dr. Gaddy's group from Kansas sought to study the undervirilized male who less than half have received a molecular diagnosis. This study demonstrated that the, the undervirilized male can use the next generation sequencing and can result in higher rate of molecular diagnosis than more traditional genetic testing. There were three abstracts that reflected our ongoing debate regarding hypospadias repair and treatment of complications. The group from Toronto, upon review of 536 consecutive tip repairs, found that the combination of glands groove graded as deep moderate or shallow absent and the urethral plate graded as robust or poor spongiosum was the main risk factor for complications. The group in Seattle demonstrated effective primary proximal hypospadias repair with use of buccal mucosa as the graft for urethroplasty. Their complication rate was similar to those of other studies using PrepUse. They suggest that this may be a preferable option over PrepUse for the most severe cases of proximal hypospadias. And the team from West Orange, New Jersey, also noted that the glands grew to be a significant variable in hypospadias complications, specifically glands dehiscence. They suggest for this type of complication, a staged approach be turned. A free graft of buccal mucosa placed in a deeply incised groove of the glands as a first stage with it being tubularized six to 12 months later. In summary, the identification and characterization of genes which alter sexual development are currently underway both at the bench and the clinical level. And we continue to determine factors that affect the success of hypospadias repair and the repair of their complications. The Basic Science Abstract Prize was awarded to Dr. Ashley Jackson for her work on urothelium gatekeeper to disease progression during congenital urinary tract obstruction. In this murine model, they destabilized a major plaque protein, uroplakin, during urinary tract obstruction and found that this promoted the progression of obstructive injury, suggesting that urothelial remodeling is a protective feature during congenital urinary tract obstruction. The group from Toronto reviewed the impact of additional urinary diversion versus just valve ablation alone for posterior valve children with stage 3 chronic kidney disease on incidence of end-stage renal disease. Post-intervention GFR revealed no significant difference between the groups and no difference in incidence of end-stage renal disease at 10-year follow-up. Urothelium may serve as a protective barrier to progressive obstructive renal injury, and the type of diversion in CKD3 valve children as neonates does not affect the incidence of end-stage renal disease at 10 years. 
The first of two moderated poster prizes was awarded to Dr. Arlen, who had previously demonstrated that ureteral diameter ratio is a reliable measure of spontaneous resolution of vesicoureteral reflux. Here, she went on to reveal that children with elevated ureteral diameter ratio are at increased risk of breakthrough UTIs independent of reflux grade. The prize-winning clinical abstract was awarded to Dr. Joshi's group from Ahmedabad, India. In concordance with Dr. DeVries' lecture on global surgical burden, this team undertook the task of international collaboration from January 2009 to 2015 from surgeons with Philadelphia, Qatar, Seattle, and India to treat the surgical burden of bladder extrafree epispadias complex in a resource-deprived center. They used the complete primary repair of extrafee, the modern stage repair, and means to ureterostomy. The cohort was evaluated in January 2016, and they all took a validated continence questionnaire. They reported their repair techniques, surgical outcomes, complications, and continence. The prize-winning video was awarded to Dr. DiCarlo from Johns Hopkins on the intraoperative MRI-guided navigation of the pelvic floor during extrafee closure. The video demonstrated that with preoperative MRI 3D imaging and then subsequent use of the brain lab computer, the stylet in real time could give them anatomic information regarding the pelvic floor, specifically the release of the urogenital diaphragm fibers and the muscle fibers of the diastatic pubic rami. Dr. Alam reviewed their experience with 12 patients in which pelvic osteotomies were not performed and instead external pelvic fixation alone was done at time of newborn bladder extrophy closure. They demonstrated that it is technically feasible with decreased hospital stay and does not necessitate lower extremity immobilization. Bladder extrafree epispadias complex requires a consistent collaborative team approach that has a rigorous algorithm, including follow-up. Intraoperative MRI may be a useful tool for successful closure. And finally, an external pelvic fixator in the newborn period may be a superior option than the current traditional approaches for select patients. There has been some recent debate that the caudal block may cause increased risk of hypospadias complications. With this in mind, two groups have sought to look for alternative methods and efficacy of regional anesthesia. Dr. Chan's group from Riley Children's compared outcomes of caudal versus dorsal penile block for penile cases. In this retrospective cohort study of 738 penile cases, caudal block was found to be more efficacious for the early postoperative period, but to be at increased cost and time compared to the penile block. Dr. Hecht at OHSU introduced a new technique in the initial experience with ultrasound-guided pudendal block. They compared patients undergoing hypospadias repair with either pudendal versus caudal block, and they found no difference in intraoperative opioid requirement, postoperative opioid doses, and that the postoperative length of stay was shorter with the pudendal block cohort. Caudal blocks are an effective form of pain control, however, do have an increased cost in time and money compared to penile blocks. The ultrasound-guided pudendal block is a novel technique in pediatric urology that has potential for a broader range of utility especially in older children where there is concern for loss of bony landmarks, urinary retention, and lower extremity weakness, as can be seen in caudal blocks. The second prize-winning poster was awarded to Dr. Morley from Morgantown, West Virginia, for preoperative tamsulosin and ureteral orifice navigation. Is there any benefit? They retrospectively reviewed patients who had had either tamsulosin for at the minimum 48 hours prior to ureteroscopy versus those who had not. Of the 22 patients who had taken tamsulosin, 19 of them had successful navigation of the ureter. In contrast, of the 19 patients who did not take the alpha blocker, only 10 had successful ureteral navigation. 
Dr. Gaither's group from UCSF sought to determine the utilization of CT scans in pediatric renal trauma. The current radiographic protocol for imaging CT scans in children, depending on institution, may attempt to limit radiation exposure by not performing delayed or excretory phase. This study demonstrates that in the setting of trauma, 32% of all patients get a repeat scan, 54% of whom get delayed imaging, which amounts to the number needed to treat as three patients to obtain the proper initial CT scan with delayed images to prevent one repeat CT scan. Dr. Alam's team from Cincinnati's Children looked to evaluate if anurea prior to pediatric renal transplantation is associated with poor allograft outcomes. In their retrospective review of 22 patients, there was no correlation between duration of anurea and GFR deterioration. Dr. Morrison's group from Lurie Children's evaluated their experience of ureteral complications in their pediatric renal transplantation group. In their analysis, there was a 15% overall rate of ureteral complications, which occurred in only 13% of those with normal bladders and 20% of those with pre-existing bladder pathology, which was not found to be statistically significant. In summary, tamsulosa may be an effective agent in assisting for successful ureteroscopy, and in the setting of pediatric renal trauma, delayed imaging should be included at the time of initial study. Pre-transplant anurea does not appear to be associated with transplant failure, and ureteral complications after transplant may have a higher association in those patients with bladder, bladder pathology. Our most complex urologic patients require ongoing care into adulthood. These studies demonstrate the importance of this transition and highlight where we are failing these special patients. Dr. Tan's abstract on the urologic outcomes in spina bifida patients undergoing transitional care revealed that the patients who had transitioned successfully into the adult clinic were more likely to have bladder management program and were less likely to undergo urologic procedures as an adult. Mr. Heddle's abstract lost myelomeningocele patients where, why, and how have they been getting health care addresses those patients who fail to follow up over 18 months at two tertiary care centers, the majority of whom had not seen a urologist in years. They were given a questionnaire in which demonstrated that the lack of follow-up is multifactorial, including provider communication, patient preference, and self-management and support. Insurance contributed, but to a lesser degree. I would like to thank the, the contributing offers for their tremendous work. We continue with penile and urethral cancer presented by Dr. Shuckman. Hi, I'd like to th thank Dr. Manga and Dr. Thrasher for the opportunity to present take-home messages in penile and urethral cancer. This year, there were two podium sessions and one moderated poster session uh, using abstracts on these topics. There was also one plenary session focusing on the relationship of HPV and penile cancer, as well as uh, one video abstract and one imaging abstract presented. Today we'll go over a few highlights, including changes in AJCC staging for both urethral and penile cancer, those abstracts looking at improving surgical outcomes, improving, including use of frozen section, as well as adjuvant therapy, adherence to guidelines, as well as HPV, where are we in 2017. First on staging, new urethral cancer stagings came out this year, and these mostly affect ureth urethelial cancer staging in the urethra. All urethelial carcinoma in situ of the prostate has been collapsed into TIS as opposed to being confused with T4 disease. Additionally, clarification has been made between T1 and T4 disease, and there is a distinction made between N1, which is one lymph node positive, and N2, which is greater than one lymph node positive. 
Going into effect in January of 2018 will be new staging in penile cancer. Historically, cavernosal and spongiosal involvement has been categorized into T2 disease, whereas T3 disease has been reserved for urethral involvement. In the new guidelines, cavernosal involvement will upstage a patient to T3 disease. There is one abstract examining the ability of this new staging system to better predict lymph node involvement at the time of lymph node dissection. This group out of Seattle um, used the National Cancer Database in, and retrospectively went back and restaged these patients according to the new system. Unfortunately, they found that there was no increased risk for the new system um, when you looked at patients who were T3 versus T2 in predicting positive inguinal lymph nodes. Changing gears to operative factors and adjuvant therapies, in a large multi-institutional study, there were 1,529 patients who were um, reviewed who underwent penile sparing surgery. This group looked at oncological outcomes as well as pattern of recurrence for penile sparing approaches. Surgical approaches included circumcision, wide local excision, laser therapy, glandsectomy, as well as glands, glands resurfacing. They found that most of these strategies did provide adequate oncologic control. However, those treated with laser as well as wide local excision were at a greater risk for recurrence. Sorry. There, was, there were two abstracts focusing on the use of intraoperative frozen section during organ sparing surgery for penile cancer. It, the group from England highlighted their single institution series of 93 patients. This was a retrospective analysis and they looked at historical recurrence rates as 6 to 29%. With a median follow-up of 28 months, they examined their own local recurrence rates. They examined 93 patients, all of whom had frozen section performed at the time of penile sparing surgery. They identified 17 patients with a positive frozen section and 82% of patients with a negative frozen section. Their policy was to complete further resection until they had a negative frozen section margin. With this strategy, they were able to avoid recurrence locally in all patients. Finally, there were two abstracts looking at the use of adjuvant therapy for node-positive penile cancer in patients who also underwent um, surgical staging of the lymph nodes. In this multi-institutional study, 92 patients were identified who underwent pelvic lymph node dissection for N3 disease. 52 of the patients received pelvic radiation therapy, while 40 of the patients did not receive pelvic radiation therapy. They had a median follow-up of nine months in this study. They found that patients who did receive pelvic uh, radiation had improved overall survival and improved disease-specific survival. Recurrence rates were significantly lower as well in the radiated group. Sorry, that did not... Uh, in this abstract from Seattle, they were examining radiation for uh, patients um, after inguinal lymph node dissection. They found that 23% of the patients underwent inguinal radiation um, who had positive lymph nodes. They found that there was improved overall survival for patients undergoing inguinal radiation. They found this at the three-year and five-year time points. They also found that the um, benefit was larger for those patients who had N2 disease as compared to those patients who had N1 disease. There was one new model created looking at an inguinal lymph node complexity score. 
aimed at predicting complications at the time of inguinal lymph node dissection. This is a novel classification tool using radi radiological parameters such as fat thickness and other um, factors related to the saphenous vein to, pr um, to predict complications following inguinal lymph node dissection. They found that when their model predicted low risk of complications um, uh, compared to moderate or high risk complications, there was a significant difference, particularly between hot major complications. In summary, penile sparing procedures are safe and effective in selected patients. Frozen section should be used in penile sparing surgeries. Adjuvant radiation for N2 and N3 disease may improve overall survival. Further randomized studies are needed. In another topic, looking at adherence to guidelines, there were several groups who looked at American and European adherence to existing penile cancer guidelines. Taken from the National Cancer Database, the group from Fox Chase looked at patients with T2 penile cancer, and they were able to show that those patients who underwent inguinal lymph node dissection had longer overall survival than those patients in which inguinal lymph node dissection was omitted. Unfortunately, they also found out that 36% of patients only underwent inguinal lymph node dissection for T2 disease. In a broader group from also um, from the National Cancer Database, um, the group out of Texas looked at patients with PT1B through PT3 disease and found that the guidelines were only being followed in 25% of cases as far as completing surgical inguinal lymph node staging. This was significantly associated with uh, treatment at a non-academic hospital, and they found that those who did not go surgical inguinal lymph node staging had a worse overall survival. I think the news is definitely better coming out of Europe. Um, in this abstract, the uh, Italian group was able to show that adherence to treatment guidelines for primary therapy were 66%, and for lymphadenectomy, the adherence rate was as high as 70%. Finally, there was really just one large study presented on urethral cancer, also taken from the National Cancer Database from the Mayo Group. They identified 1,000 women with primary urethral cancer. They found that adenocarcinoma was the most common pathology in 36% of the patients, and women with adenocarcinoma were more likely to be younger, African-American, and present with an advanced stage. They found that trimodal therapy was significantly improved with overall survival. In technology, there was one nice video presented from NYU demonstrating the use of fluorescence lymphangiography during robotic groin dissection. And in focus on HPV, there were two um, health survey studies examining knowledge re uh, related to HPV information and its relationship with penile cancer. In this survey, they highlighted that knowledge is really pretty good as a, um, when, when you're asking patients whether they know that HPV is related to cervical cancer. However, when people are asked if they know that HPV is even related to penile cancer, only 30% of survey respondents had any idea that there was any sort of a correlation. The HPV prevalence is shown to be very high in men, 45%, with high-risk HPV subtypes 16 and 18 present in 6%. Despite this high prevalence, vaccination rates are still very, very low. In the plenary discussion of HPV as a preventable cause of cancer, panelists Eisenberg, Charlotte, Trost, and Pileski had a wonderful discussion about HPV and preventable cancers. From Dr. Pileski's presentation, he highlighted a randomized trial of three, over 3,000 men demonstrating a 35% risk in HPV after circumcision. 
Additionally, uh, 3.2, uh, I mean, neonatal circumcision, um, in patients who had neonatal circumcision, they were 3.2 times less likely to develop penile cancer at any time in their life. This benefit may be slightly lower for patients who have circumcisions as adults. Despite strong recommendations for vaccination, we know that compliance rates are still low. The current recommendation is that all boys and all girls be vaccinated for HPV. Females should be vaccinated at any time from age 9 to 26, although it's recommended that this take place in the prepubertal setting. And males should be vaccinated any time through age 21. HPV vaccination is, again, indicated for both males and females. There is a new non-avalent vaccine that is being used in the United States, which covers more subtypes of HPV. And widespread vaccination should prevent nearly all genital warts, as well as 90% of anogenital cancers if given prior to sexual tabia. Further public education is certainly needed regarding the relationship of HPV to penile cancer. Infection with HPV is a modifiable risk factor for HPV, and we should encourage understanding and compliance with vaccination guidelines. Thank you very much. And we conclude today with the take-home messages in kidney cancer presented by Dr. Merrill. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, Dr. Thrasher and Dr. Manga, for the opportunity to present this year's take-home messages on kidney cancer. At this AUA, there were over 295 total abstracts, including two best poster abstracts and one late-breaking abstract presented on kidney cancer. I will focus on the clinical um, abstracts, given that basic research in pathophysiology was already discussed. In localized surgical therapy, the most common themes presented this year were robotic IVC thrombectomy, impact of positive surgical margins during partial nephrectomy, partial nephrectomy in PT3A and metastatic disease, renal ischemia, parenchymal volume loss, and impact on renal function. To highlight a few, abstract MP4901 was a phase three randomized trial looking at the impact of intravenous mannitol used during renal ischemia time during um, nephron sparing surgery. This was out of the MSK group. This phase three trial incorporated approximately 200 patients and they found no difference at six months, six week postoperative EGFRs between the two groups they also found no difference at six-month renal scans between the group that received intraoperative mannitol and the group that received saline. Their conclusions from this trial were that intravenous mannitol infusion during nephron-sparing surgery does not lead to clinic clinically relevant improvement in renal function outcomes and should be discontinued. Another abstract looked at perioperative morbidity of clamp versus off-clamp robotic partial nephrectomy. This was a multi-center randomized clinical trial, the CLOCK study out of Italy. The aim of this study was to compare perioperative morbidity after robotic partial nephrectomy. This group randomized 164 patients, 84 to CLAMP and 80 to off-CLAMP robotic uh, partial nephrectomy. The groups were comparable in baseline features, in complication rates that were observed, and in oncological outcomes. Um, the differences that were observed were the severity and bleeding that were perceived by the surgeon, as well as the actual calculated estimated blood loss. They saw a shift in off-clamp to clamp um, procedures in 41% of the cases that were intended to initially be off-clamp. 50% of this occurred during resection of the mass itself. And their conclusions were that while off-clamp partial um, nephrectomies were equally safe, 
to those that were done off-clamp, a relevant rate of cases of off-clamp partial nephrectomies were not feasible um, later to due to bleeding. In the localized ablative and active surveillance space, um, this abstract was prevented from, uh, presented by the group from Johns Hopkins. They looked at the results from the DIS-CIRM um, registry, which compared partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy, ablative therapies, and active surveillance. Essentially, they found that cancer-specific survival was comparable in all groups. They found overall survival was worse, as expected, in the active surveillance group. However, this was likely um, attributable to older age and worse health status at baseline. Their overall conclusions were that the, the survival rates were comparable in all groups after they adjusted for age and all comorbidities. They also concluded that patients were being appropriately selected for active surveillance. They looked at quality of life measures as well as renal function and determined that radical nephrectomy resulted in significantly worse kidney function in these patients with the small renal mass. In advanced kidney cancers, the most common themes investigated were cytoreductive nephrectomy and metastatic RCC, surgery in patients with IVC tumor thrombus, role of neoadjuvant and adjuvant-targeted therapies, utility of inflammatory markers, and the impact of tumor kinetics, marker kinetics, and pharmacokinetics on prognosis. This adjuvant study looking at um, adjuvant sunitinib in patients with high-risk renal cell carcinoma um, was presented um, from the S-TRAC trial. This, in this study, where they gave sunitinib to local regional um, RCC um, in patients that were at high risk of tumor recurrence after nephrectomy, they found that there was an over two-year difference in, medial, um, or in median survival between the sunitinib and placebo-treated patients. In the majority of the subgroups that they investigated, particularly those patients that were at higher risk, including T3, T4, and any nodal um, status, had a, uh, had a benefit um, in terms of um, disease-free uh, survival. There was a late-breaking abstract presented at this year's AUA, the A-PREDICT trial. This was a phase two study of oxitinib um, that was investigating the use of oxitinib in metastatic renal cell cancer in patients who were unsuitable for a nephrectomy. There were 99 patients that were included in this phase two study, um, and their endpoint primarily was the proportion of patients who were alive and without disease at six months. They found that approximately 39 of 65 patients, or 60% of patients, were alive without progression at six months. And again, these are patients who did not undergo an nephrectomy. Eight of the 65 patients, or 12%, did proceed to an nephrectomy after a median of 8.6 months. And their median overall survival was 18.7 months. They found that exitinib appeared to have a three-month longer median progression-free survival than tezrolimus, which is the current recommended standard of care for poor-risk patients. In the space of epidemiology and evaluation and staging, the most common themes here were role of the renal mass biopsy, factors affecting the metastatic potential of renal tumors, variables that influence recurrence rates and long-term survival, and surveillance following partial and radical nephrectomy. One of the best posters that was presented out of Emory looked at the role of liquid biopsy in renal cell cancers. They evaluated circulating cell-free um, um, tumor DNA and looked at known mutations that are found in RCC. They determined that 60% of their co uh, cohort had detectable DNA mutations of those genes. 3% of the control patients had detectable DNA mutations. They were even able to detect RCC in patients with both early and advanced stages, 
and they showed that even a tumor as small as 1.1 centimeters, they were able to detect RCC. A second best poster was presented looking at whether or not our current guidelines are sufficient for organ-treated renal cancer. Even though recurrence rates were found to be rare in this group, only 4.4%, 42% of those recurrences occurred after 60 months. There was a trend in those late recurrences towards tumors that were PT1A and towards tumors that were grade 1. That leads us into kidney cancer guideline updates. Dr. Campbell gave us a nice um, presentation at the plenary on the guideline updates for localized kidney cancer. Um, there are several differences um, to these guidelines as compared to the 2009 guidelines. There is no index patient that is listed for these patients. Um, index patients previously were defined by looking at um, healthy versus unhealthy patients and looking at tumor stage T1A and T1B. The panel has recognized that there is great variance in patient oncologic and functional outcomes, and they, count, they, they um, recommend counseling patients um, on choices to proceed with therapies rather than basing them on indexed patients. The guidelines also prioritize partial nephrectomy in the management of CT1A renal masses, um, which has not changed. Um, they also recommend prioritizing nephron-sparing approaches for patients with solitary kidneys, bilateral tumors, known familial RCC, any pre-existing CKD or proteinuria. Tumor enucleation was incorporated into the updates this year, um, and this, although more research is needed to um, conclude whether this is oncologically safe, it can be considered for patients specifically with familial RCC, multifocal disease, severe CKD near dialysis, and should take into consideration the clinical switch situation for the patient, as well as tumor characteristics, including growth pattern and interface with normal tissue at time of surgery. Well-defined patient selection criteria for radical nephrectomy were incorporated into the guidelines. Physicians should consider radical nephrectomy where there is increased oncologic potential. Um, increased oncologic potential includes increased tumor size, high-grade unfavorable histology, an infiltrative appearance, or any locally invasive features. And again, in addition to those oncologic risks, if the following three criteria are present, then radical nephrectomy is preferred. High tumor complexity, in which a partial nephrectomy would be challenging, even in experienced hands. No pre-existing CKD or proteinuria. A normal contralateral kidney that will likely provide an EGFR of over 45. Otherwise, a partial nephrectomy should be considered. Lastly, in looking at the guideline updates for active surveillance, what has been incorporated is that in patients with small renal masses, less than two centimeters, active surveillance is an option for initial management, even in healthy patients. Um, this should, of course, be included in shared decision-making with the patient and take into consideration age and other comorbidities. Thank you again to all the authors and contributors for their tremendous work at this session. Thank you.